Welcome to another episode of your favorite poetry podcast, Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we have got a wild, rancid poem for you today. Uh, maybe not rancid, but it is verging on the grotesque. But it's great. And it is by the poet I, who spelled A-I, um, who's one of our great poets, was born in 1947, died in 2010. Her selected poems, Vice, won the National Book Award in 1999. And she's known for her sort of, quote, bleak, dramatic monologues, is how the Poetry Foundation described her. And, and really, throughout her whole career, basically almost exclusively used the form of the like first-person persona poem. And this poem today is no exception. It's called, I have got to stop loving you, so I have killed my black goat. I think I will read it. Yeah, let's uh, hear it. It's, the title itself is super intense, and it really <laughs> does set you up nicely for how distressing the poem is. Because, I mean, my black goat just makes it so perverse that it was killed because it really creates that connection between the, the the writer and the goat that is... I know. It's my black goat, and I've just... I've destroyed its life now. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, let's let's hear it. Let's hear it. I have got to stop loving you, so I have killed my black goat. His kidney floats in a bowl a beige flat fish, around whom parasites, slices of lemon, break through the surface of hot broth, then sink below, as I bend, face down in the steam, breathing in. I hear this will cure anything. When I am finished, I walk up to him. He hangs from a short wooden post, tongue stuck out of his mouth, tasting the hay-flavored air. A bib of flies gathers at his throat, and further down where he is open and bare of all his organs, I put my hand in, stroke him once, then taking it out, look at the sky. The storm clouds there break open, and raindrops, yellow as black cat's eyes, come down each a tiny river, hateful and alone. Wishing I could get out of this alive, I hug myself. It is hard to remember if he suffered much. So there you go. Yikes. I hope you're not uh, listening to this over a fine meal. Or just in general, I hope you're not squeamish. Yeah, um, and she really is I've known for, uh, like, just very kind of a, a poetry of abjection, uh, very brutal topics. And her the titles of her books, I'll just read them out, because I think they sort of indicate the continuity. This first was published, this poem was first published in her first book called Cruelty in 1973, and then it was republished in her new and selected vice. She also published Killing Floor, Sin, Fate, Greed, Dread, and her last book was called No Surrender. 
But this is another one I, I like to teach because, you know, we talk sometimes about the, the use of concrete detail and why that's important to get you in the poem. And the great thing about that mantra is it can be taken to an extreme, perhaps a logical extreme, which I think this poem illustrates well, where the, the detail is, is grotesque. It begins with a kidney floating in a bowl that's compared to a beige fish. And there's parasites. And basically, the sort of the plot of the poem is the speaker doesn't want to love this person, is in pain about it or something, has sort of sacrificed her goat and made a kind of seems like cauldron broth with the organs or at least the kidney that's sort of like a ritual maybe to cleanse herself of this this love or this pain and then walks up to the goat that's hanging on a post and sticks her hand inside of the goat and then takes it out and looks up at the sky where there's like yellow acid rain almost and then yeah and then hugs herself and that's basically sort of what happens. But I have a lot of thoughts. I'm curious. I'm curious. <laughs> I sort of was like, hey, Jack, uh, want to read this poem? Want to talk about it? And I kind of threw it at you. So I, I apologize for that. I'm not sure you knew what was coming. <laughs> no, I, I was not. I don't know that anyone could be fully prepared for this poem before actually digging into it. Um, and it is a poem that I have found more than most that I come across that particularly rewards uh, rereading and continued engagement. Because at first, the literally visceral aspects of the poem can be a bit overwhelming, which I think is entirely intentional and indeed is its own kind of fulfilling experience because it's rare that you're moved that strongly by something you read one way or another, even if it is towards uh, retching. Um, which, <laughs> to be clear, I didn't. I have an iron stomach when it comes to my literary diet, so don't even worry about it, friends. It starts off so strong with a kidney floating in this sort of uh, rancid broth. It conjured for me a lot of images of sort of like a, a backwoods witch's cabin. I don't know, some kind of like forest witch, basically. <laughs> but it really is a poem of such incredible sadness and loss. Uh, and particularly at the end where you find this figure who... Uh, throughout the poem has been yearning and wanting and everything, but ends up kind of in the fetal position, crouched over and, and hugging herself. And I found that image particularly stuck with me because it really is holding yourself together. And we've just spent the whole poem ruminating on this split open goat. And it's like she's holding herself together in the same way that the goat was split open. And it was those contrasts really stuck with me. Because um, even in the reflection on her own loss and what she's doing, hugging herself, uh, it calls back to the goat. And then the end of the poem calls back to it saying, uh, it's hard to remember if he suffered much. Yeah. So she's thinking about it too. She's not, the connection is not lost on the, on the speaker in the poem. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is, that's great reading. Yeah. And I love this poem because it illustrates something that happens, I think in a, in a lot of poems, but in a forceful 
sort of direct way and it's the sort of most prominent feature in some way, which is this kind of, I don't have a great way of talking about it. It's this kind of idea of proxy or like a proxy image. So it's very notable that the, the you in this poem or the one that the speaker is trying to get over is mentioned in the title and then literally not at all. And there's basically, you have no idea who they are, what happened between them, what their history is, just that the speaker is tormented by her love of this person. And yet this focus on the goat does this kind of proxy work for the what the relationship and the love means for the speaker, which is very interesting and compelling. And so the goat basically has this kind of dual function where on the one hand, it's sort of the plot of the ritual to cleanse the speaker, perhaps, but it also is sort of a stand-in or a literalization of the the suffering that the speaker herself feels, I think. It's a yeah. literal scapegoat. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure the origins of scapegoat is that uh, in the Bible, when the Jews are wandering in the wilderness, I think they put the the like the leader puts all the sins into a goat and then releases it to release the sins of the people if i'm remembering that correctly and so this similarly lays a lot of the pain and loss of the relationship into the body of the goat and then splits it open and transforms it into the the healing broth yeah oh that's that is fascinating i had not made that connection um yeah and just, yeah, I like I just I feel like this is a common thing, not just in poetry, but in sort of art in a lot of forms where like even in movies. It could sort of be uh, like Rosebud and Citizen Kane, where, right? Where Rosebud is this key that unlocks who Kane was and it's his dying word, but it sort of stands in for everything he never had as a child and all that he was compensating for in the rest of his life. This will not be recorded. But I have not. I've never seen this again. I know it's very bad. It's actually no. The movie's very good, actually. <laughs> it's okay. One of the best I've heard. One of the best. Ooh. Other, other. Well, here are other examples. The end of the movie, The Danish Girl, which came out recently, which follows a transgender woman, like the first transition in some kind of ways, but ends with they're remembering her at the end of the movie in some capacity and they fly this kite and the last scene you're looking at this kite and i feel like it's sort of a proxy metaphor for this sort of liberation that the danish girl character sort of achieved and so they can't sort of express that perhaps in words but you are meant to read into that the image of the beautiful kite. Because that really is a lot of what's going on here. The the reality of the relationship cannot be adequately touched upon. And so it's transplanted into this related goat corpse. Yes. I guess I'm thinking maybe we should get specific at some point, but I have other I'm thinking in big general ideas these days, with by which I mean today. So one thing that we've talked about is concrete details. And so there's, and there's a sort of cliche that to get to the universal, you have to go through the particular. And that's kind of like thing that, you know, we see a lot in 
in all sort of art, basically. But there's another contrast that I think has sort of a parallel, which is this sort of tension between the sacred and the profane, um, which is sort of a distinction that goes back probably forever. But specifically, I know about it was very present in the English Renaissance with uh, during Shakespeare's time and Marlowe and John Donne and George Herbert and other people where they're talking about very sacred topics, God, Christ, religion, whatever, but they're getting at it through profane imagery. And I feel like there's a parallel between the profane and the particular or the specific or the concrete and the universal and the sacred or um, the transcendent. And in some ways, I feel like the profane is merely the logical extreme of the specific. And anyway, there's there's lots of they're just interesting things that uh, sort of other references that just help me contextualize how this goat is working because it's a very gro- grotesque, very profane, but it is the means through which you have to pass through this mutilated goat to get to the sense of this profound suffering perhaps sacred suffering that the speaker is feeling. And this makes me think of, there's this other, there's this great scholarly work that I read some of in college that's called Closet Devotions by Richard Rambus, which was kind of about English Renaissance art. Um, But basically it was a rewriting of a lot of scholarship that had taken all of these renderings of Christ as sort of um, making Christ effeminate And I mean, this is uh, reductive, but saying that there actually were like sort of homoerotic representations and that there was actually a lot of, but one one focus on was this poet, Richard Crashaw, who was very striking in that he was like obsessed with the orifices of Christ and the, the wounds of Christ in this kind of way that was like both was quite grotesque, but also was sort of a way at getting at this profound love for Christ and Christianity by extension or whatever. So here's a part of one of Crashaw's poems, which is translated as the title, On the Wounds of the Lord Hanging on the Cross. Whether I call your wounds eyes or mouths, surely everywhere are mouths. Alas, everywhere are eyes. Behold the mouths, O blooming with lips too red. Behold the eyes, ah, wet with cruel tears. Picturing the wounds of Christ as he's on the cross bleeding and picturing those wounds as like mouths or eyes to be done with what one might is sort of an example of that. And Rambus makes a connection between this kind of poetry in the English Renaissance and other more contemporary work. Um, the big example that I can think of is um, this Christ, which is this photograph by Andres Serrano, um, which is kind of this image of Jesus on the cross, but like basically being showered in urine. Submerged in urine, isn't Emerged. it? It's a, isn't it a crucifix in urine that, and then he took a picture? Yep, you're absolutely right. Sorry, so yeah. <laughs> And it's the artist's own urine. Well, I mean, if you're going to do it. If you're going to do it, I mean, you might as well do it yourself. 
but it's a similar kind of thing where the you know it's a it's a very extreme example of this profane but in some ways concrete depiction or way of getting at something sacred or or profound I really like that connection because that brings up the exact challenge that this poem presents. And like the challenge for a lot of people with, for example, Piss Christ is like, how do I get past the vulgarity of this work, which is an important component of it and is really a huge part of what's going on in the work. How do I access the message that it's trying to give me? Um, and when I read this poem, partially because of a YouTube rabbit hole I went down, <laughs> about, uh, the play Titus Andronicus, which is Shakespeare's like most bloody and extreme play, which, you know, for him is saying quite a lot. Uh, but Julie Taymor did one of the most famous productions of it. She made a movie of it in the in the late 90s. And one of her comments on it was, I love the truth of the play, but I hate the reality of the play. And I think that's such a great way of thinking about these kinds of works that mobilize the grotesque or mobilize shock value or the really jarring juxtaposition of the sacred and the profane to get to a core truth or to say something of real power and emphasis. Um, one of the actors was also commenting a little bit crudely on, you know, Hollywood makes movies where thousands of people die in them and hundreds of people get blown up and everything. But we make one movie where like, these kinds of really horrible acts hit home and are examined and it's done really artfully and it's done with a purpose and no studio is going to back that because they get freaked out about it. You know, like he bakes people into food or whatever, you know, like it's changed a little bit since the late nineties because they, they do this now on in more stuff, but like these really out there depictions of what can be done to a body or what can be done here to the body of a goat like that, there's a challenge in the reality of it, but there's so much value in the truth that it can reveal that it it sort of makes it worthwhile. And I think a lot of the litmus test, at least for me, when I'm engaging with this kind of work, which I do a fair amount, I like Cormac McCarthy, I like Flannery O'Connor, lots of people who do lots of grotesque stuff uh, in their books. But the test is sort of what what are you pointing me towards at the end? Did I just deal with all this for nothing or was there some core truth in it that you were pointing me towards? My measuring point for that is always the movie Lone Survivor, which when I finished, I just felt like I'd watched a whole bunch of people get shot to hell for like two hours. And I had no idea what I was supposed to take away from that. <laughs> it really was just an exercise in like pain and abuse to the human body. And I think that where this poem really soars is that it does constantly point you back to the message it wants you to take. And I think it does that through this addition of it's not just about the killing of the goat. It's about the use that the goat's killing was put to. And it's always bringing you back to that over and over and over again in the text of the poem. And that's where I was able to get through the reality of the poem and into uh, the truth of it, which I, which was where I was able to hold on to what I really liked about it, even in the face of like, a bib of flies gathered at his throat um, or stroking the inside of it. Because uh, yeah. even in the stroking of the inside, it then goes to her uh, looking at the sky. And I can imagine the scene of her having just stroked the inside of this bloody goat, holding her red hand up to this, you know, yellow rain that's coming down in the middle of this dark forest. Like it conjured a really meaningful image that, was this heightened sense of cosmic grief that she's feeling and the stroking of the goat, other imagery about that aside, just the image of a red hand raised to like a yellow sky, I found really 
powerful and spoke to me of like this small person in the face of torrential universal grief or whatever, you know, it really, it, it added to my experience of the poem. Yeah, no, that makes me think, so just some other quick examples. Um, well, A, the word stroke is like, that's such a great, terrible word to read, but um, really, yeah, gets at the sensuality and the gentleness and the sexuality of that word stroke in this context is is like very important i think but yeah in terms of other like moments like in movies often that's so interesting about the titus andronicus because also the most horrifying parts of movies are the small violences like in three billboards it's the thing in the fingernail what is it the the drill the dentist drill that goes in the thumbnail and that is brutal and like there's like times when like the, you know, the barber is like about to the first cut into a neck is always like the most excruciating. Whereas you can watch, you know, like you said, just like people being mowed down forever and not feel that much. <laughs> um, the, famous, uh, the famous Stalin quote, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. I mean, yeah. that's, it's like a little microcosm of that, right? You know? Yeah, that does make me think, and I love that you brought up those, like, the yellow rain, because there's also that, that's also so sad, where I feel like the way I read that moment, the storm clouds there break open and raindrops yellow as black cat's eyes come down, each a tiny river, hateful and alone. There's kind of this moment where she's sort of done the thing. She's killed the goat. She's smelled the steam and stroked the inside or whatever. Like the ritual that was supposed to cleanse her has been done. And will it work? And so she kind of looks to the sky and it's yellow rain that are like black cat's eyes, which is like a classic cursed animal or a symbol of being cursed and the little hateful and alone rivers. And so there's this, this even, even with this like really extreme act, it's futile ultimately, it feels like it. And, and she says right after, wishing I could get out of this alive, I hug myself. That she had thought maybe this would help her get out of loving this person and the pain of that, and it doesn't. I think the hateful and alone is clearly meant to refer to the uh, the raindrops, but it can also refer to the speaker as well, which I really like the way that it's uh, broken off by that comic. It kind of goes both ways a little bit. And that I thought was just really excellent poem craft. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And that's also like another, even without the syntactical part, which I think is totally right, that leads you there. Like the environment is so often used as a reflection of interiority. And so, you know, there's always like, it was a dark and stormy night or blah, blah, blah. But that's like the sort of classic. But this is kind of a version of the dark and stormy night where she looks out and the external world reflects both the hatred and the solitude and aloneness that she feels. And then it ends reflecting back I, both on the goat and then because of what the goat stands for, the person that she is, I guess, no longer with, or at least who she wants to stop loving, it's hard to remember if he suffered much. And my, I literally wrote, I sure hope not, but it doesn't sound promising. Uh, 
thinking about this poor goat because I don't know what the mechanism of ritual slaughter was, but also it sort of reflects back to the nature of whatever the relationship might have been. And it's sort of sad because it's almost like she's thinking, I don't know if he was sad about this at all. Yeah, I think you're right that the he sort of works both as the goat and the other person, the you in the relationship. Because if it's the you, it's like, did they even care? And like, I'm just the only one who cares. And that's just like one of the worst feelings. Uh, but then it's also like, you didn't even know, you just like slaughtered this animal and you can't even remember if it felt any pain. Which is a kind of, it's like a sort of, maybe that's how the you effectively, you know, figuratively slaughtered the speaker and can't even remember if like she felt two ways about it, <laughs> which is just, it's brutal. Another pop culture example. I just saw Call Me By Your Name, which is Nice, so I have not seen that yet, but it's good. supposed to be amazing. You have to see it. So good. I won't spoil it, but it's a, it's a coming of age story between um, this 17 year old boy and this young man. And, but there's this one scene that's very powerful where like the boy is like sort of fantasizing about the guy and has this peach and like puts his thumb in like really deep into the peach. And then the juice of the peach is like, he's like lying in bed is like dripping all over his body. And then he masturbates with the peach and then sets the peach and finishes inside of it. And then the guy comes in and like, like he's about to basically go down on him and taste the, he's like, what happened? <laughs> and then he sees the peach and then um, he like starts to eat the peach and the boy like the knowing what's what's there and the boy just starts like sobbing and it's like this really incredible scene but it's a perfect illustration of there's like this profound lust and love but also this profound sense of shame or uncertainty about it that is sort of like put in this profane concrete peach um that sort of serves as a proxy for their relationship and their feeling about their relationship. I think that's maybe the best example that we've come up with yet, because much like the goat, the peach first had to be split in some way to make room for all of the meaning that it will be imbued with. Uh, and I think that's a really important component of what's going on with the goat, uh, because as closed off as she is at the end, without that goat being ripped open, the space for all of this to take place would not exist. Um, and it's sort of the same with the peach. It has to be punctured first before any meaning can be put into it. Yeah, no, that's so true. Also, and this is sort of similar, but the movie is just so good. But one of the ways that scene is so good is the shot is so long of him like puncturing the peach before you know like what he's going to do with it. So you just sort of are looking at him like putting his thumb in the peach and the juice dripping before everything else happens. And that reminds me of the way sort of we talk about, I've talked about like duration of images and how you have to hold an image for, for sometimes, you know, longer for it to have the effect. And in this poem, the goat's mutilation has to be described at length for it to serve as a figurative representation. 
in the same way that I feel like the longer that the peach was sort of just a peach in the scene that you're just looking at the peach makes what comes after and the sort of metaphor that that serves like all that more potent. On the subject of the profane, I guess quickly, I know we touched on like what having my black goat in the title does, but I think it's also kind of profane because my has that sense of ownership or responsibility. And this is not how you treat those that you are responsible for or over whom you have some sort of sort of control. And so I think the the profanity of the act that you get hit with, his kidney floats in a bowl at the beginning, is really set up by having that in the title, which is the inclusion of just my instead of a or you know not even mentioning the goat and just saying i've got to stop loving you uh is really part of what launches this poem so effectively there's also this article that i found uh this is sort of the last thought that i have it's called the piece is in the i think american poetry review and it's called earn the vomit employing the grotesque in contemporary poetry it's by Anna Journey, who's a phenomenal poet. Her first book is called Vulgar Remedies. She talks about I's poem, this poem. And I just think it this way, the way that Journey talks about it is, is was helpful for me to think about. So the ritually slaughtered black goat is an open structure, a locus of ambivalence that allows for tenderness and violence, love and hate, repulsion and attraction. We discover that the witchy speaker has killed her own goat in order to use its internal organs as the ingredients of a spell or charm against heartache. And this is exactly what Jack was saying. The adjective my in the title disrupts our conventional attitudes about how one goes about treating a pet, making the sacrificial killing a transgressive act. The black goat becomes a surrogate for the act of murdering the speaker's lover as well as a reflection of her own violent emotion. The flayed corpse is a hybrid form, a plurality of animal and human bodies. Anyway, I like all this. The other thing too, and here's the other part, is using these sort of proxy images or metaphors to stand in for something, as Journey notes, allows for a lot more complexity because you're not just saying, I loved you, I'm sad, I am violently sad, in which case you get the idea, A, it's uninteresting, but also the meaning is clear. Whereas here, this body is hybrid, it's dual, it's ambivalent, it's both, you're, the speaker's both attracted to it, but it's also repulsive. And so there's a lot more ways that you can read one image because the image is just being itself. It's not telling you how to read it. That's an excellent point. Because I think when these kinds of images fail is when you're being so clearly pointed towards this means this. Look at how it means it. Hey, did you notice that this is what it means? Like, that's where it becomes like, all right, okay, I get it. Yes, fine. Uh, the sword stands <laughs> in for his manliness. I understand. You know, it's like, oh, his sword was cut in half when he lost his job. Like, okay, I get it. You know, like when it's hammered home, as yeah. with many storytelling devices or images and things. But when it's just presented to you as that way without it being told over and over and over again, it becomes incredibly effective. This actually sort of reminds me of this thing that uh, my friend Hannah, who's also a poet, sent me which is very weird, but it's sort of this 
conversation that Charles Simic, who's another great poet, might have been having with himself yeah, under weird egos, but it's called Narrative of the Image of Correspondence. But anyway, in that, there's a distinction made between the image and the metaphor, which I think I often conflate and probably did in this podcast. And this is an example of the image working, where the image does not tell you something. It just is. Whereas the metaphor maybe uses an image, but it aspires to, to tell you something. So one, one way that they dis described this distinction was, it's true the image is less and the metaphor is more. As the master said, for knowledge, add, for wisdom, take away. The image is Zen. Metaphor is Christian. That's cool. Which is kind of cool. It's um, sort of like, uh, I'm thinking of Star Wars. Um, but like good. the very opening of the first Star Wars, you get this image of a ship and then you see it being chased by this infinitely long, what we come to learn is an Imperial Star Destroyer. And in those two images, you so clearly get the picture of what's going on. Mm. It's this image of a small ship being chased and this enormous, all-encompassing, oppressive force coming after it. And yeah. that is the rebellion in the Empire. True. And because it is not the like spelled out metaphors of the prequels, it's just this visual storytelling, really. That's anyway, yeah, we've come up with many more examples than necessary. Hopefully <laughs> some of these find their way to the cutting room floor, but... Uh, I don't know that I have anything else. So I think I'm spent. I mean, it's it is funny. We've spent all this time talking about how the image is. Well, if the image is less, we've just been like adding on to the ways to read it in a sort of uh, excessive way. But that could be fun in its own way. So take anything, take nothing, take all of it. But let's hear it again. Yeah, let's hear it again. I have got to stop loving you, so I have killed my black goat. His kidney floats in a bowl, a beige flat fish, around whom parasites, slices of lemon, break through the surface of hot broth, then sink below, as I bend, face down in the steam, breathing in. I hear this will cure anything. When I am finished, I walk up to him. He hangs from a short wooden post, tongue stuck out of his mouth, tasting the hay-flavored air. A bib of flies gathers at his throat, and further down, where he is open and bare of all his organs, I put my hand in, stroke him once, then taking it out, look at the sky. The storm clouds there break open, and raindrops, yellow as black cat's eyes, come down, each a tiny river, hateful and alone. Wishing I could get out of this alive, I hug myself. It is hard to remember if he suffered much. much for listening. If you like this, please write a review or rate us on iTunes. You can keep up with us at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can keep up with Jack 
at Jack Rossiter Mund, or me at Hot Sauce Boxed. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, or think we got something wrong, or a suggestion for what we should talk about in the future, please let us know. Shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.